Hey, thanks for checking out the Axiom Podcast. It's a podcast feed by Axiom Church in Arizona. We really just want to host some conversations about what we think God is up to in our community and in our world. And we also want to post our sermons from our Sunday gatherings. You can get all that here and more. Um, so definitely interact with us on our social medias. It's all under um, Axiom Church AZ, and our website's axiomchurchaz.com. Thanks for checking us out. Hope you enjoy. Back into that series, um, and we are starting off with uh, we're, we're picking up where we left off. Which, if you'll remember, we left off with Stephen being martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ's proclamation of the work of Jesus Christ in the world, that of healing and restoring and reconciling the relationship between human beings and God. Now, of course, we hear that and we're like, well, that sounds like, that sounds like good news. Why would anybody get mad about that? Well, we'll remember that what the, what the apostles, those followers of Jesus represented for the power structures of the time was disruption. The apostles, the followers of Jesus were disrupting not just the political orders of the time, but also the religious and social orders of the time by making this bold proclamation. And so there was resistance that they experienced. And we just got through kind of experiencing the beginnings of that serious resistance that the followers of Jesus Christ were experiencing. And besides Stephen getting killed, there is this one figure that emerges. His name is Saul. He is particularly... Uh, particularly uh, uh, eager to get these, these Jesus followers and to get them in trouble, right? It says that he is going around persecuting the church, scattering the church about. And so that is where we are entering our story in Acts, all right, at the beginning of the morning. And there are three, three things, though, as we start off that I want you to hold on to and just kind of like bookmark it, okay? Because we're going to be getting to these over the course of this sermon. The three things are magic, money, and vacuum salesmen, all right? Magic, money, and vacuum salesmen, I promise they will all come up over the course of this sermon, all right? So we are going to be diving into Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. We've heard that Paul is out scattering the church breaking it up, trying to arrest people. And what we see in verse 4 is those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So right off the bat, we see that although folks are being scattered, although people are trying to hurt them, kill them, arrest them, that they are still preaching the word, the word of truth, which is that Jesus, is God, Jesus God has entered the world and restored the relationship between God and humanity, has brought peace and reconciliation into the world. And so the followers of Jesus, they are going about, they are scattered, but they are still preaching. And one of these, one of these scattered folks who is a follower of Jesus Christ, his name is Philip. And Philip, he goes down to a city in a place called Samaria and proclaims the, the, the Messiah there, which is Jesus. Jesus was called the Messiah by his followers. When the crowds heard Philip, and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure, spirit, uh, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
So there was great joy in the city. So he goes to this place called Samaria, a place to which he is, he is an outsider. He comes in, though, and he starts doing some pretty, pretty incredible things, I think we can all acknowledge, right? He is, he is uh, making impure spirit, spirits come out of many, and he is healing people who are paralyzed and lame, right? That's pretty, that's pretty awesome, actually, healing folks. And as, as we might expect, people were reacting positive, positively to this, right? Reacting positively. Folks had seen demonstrated to them that there was something cool that Philip had access to that they wanted a part of. And so they respond positively to that fact, right? We just came out of a time, a holiday season time, where we had a lot of cool products and stuff being demonstrated to us frequently. And some of us probably decided based on those demonstrations, that, hey, yes, sign me up for that. That is awesome. That thing can do that thing. I want that, right? I want a new smartphone. I want a new computer. I want a new vacuum cleaner, what have you, right? So people see awesome works happening. They're really cool. And so they're like, oh, this is awesome. We love it, all right? Now, this is the part where we get to the, the magic part, though, all right? In verse 9, we meet a guy named Simon. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria, this place where Philip is. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Okay, we're going to pause here for a moment to break this down a little bit. So you have this guy named Simon who for some time he had been doing stuff that amazed people that they thought was so cool. And they even would exclaim, this man is rightly called the great power of God. Not lowercase g, mind you, uppercase g, right? Which implies that they're referring to the one true God, right? They followed him, they followed him because he had amazed them. Not totally unlike Philip is now amazing the people. And before we get hung up on the sorcery language, what can happen is we read sorcery and we're like, oh, he was a bad guy because sorcery stuff, right? But what is a sorcerer, right? They perform magic, okay, but that also kind of sounds like so clear and obvious. This is a bad guy, right? He's, he's doing magic, magic, magic's bad, right? C.S. Lewis uh, had this phrase, uh, he, he said that, the modern age, we have practiced this thing called chronological snobbery. We think that because we came after something, that we're smarter and more sophisticated than the people that came before. And so I want to break down this language of sorcery so that we can maybe not just assume that it's just that he is so obviously bad. A sorcerer was a person who, yeah, they had power, right? They had a kind of power or influence over people. We read here, in fact, in this section that because of the great things that he did, he was able to get people's attention. Sorcerers, they would use sometimes in their, in their magic, they had these things called sigils. They were little objects. They were objects that they would use to capture a person's attention. They would get you to fixate on that 
thing so that you would focus in and then they would have some kind of like, they would have your attention, right? And that would give them a kind of power to make you do things, right? They also used something called a seer stone or a crystal ball. It was an object that allowed them to see the past, the present, the future, right? They would become all-knowing, all-seeing, right? They could look in and view and see what had happened, what is happening all across the world potentially, and then what might be happening in your future. In fact, I might suggest that these skills are not so different. I don't know if you've seen these devices before. They're called smartphones. <laughs> They're these little pieces of glass that you can look into and you can see anything you want to about the past. You can actually see anything across the world that's happening in the present. And in some cases, it even allows you to see into the future. There's going to be an economic crisis coming. There's going to be a housing market crash. See the future. Can I predict what stocks are going to do well? I see into the future. There are also areas, believe it or not, I know this is shocking, there are places on the internet, the internet which is something that you access through your smartphone, where people will try to get your attention. I know. They'll post photos of something that's happened throughout their day, or post a comment, or these things they call memes. They, try to capture, they will try to capture your attention with these things. And of course, we kind of like our attention being captured, right? It's kind of enjoyable. I spend a lot of time having my attention captured, right? Now, there's this other thing that happens with folks who are particularly gifted and skilled at doing remarkable things online and capturing a lot of people's attention subsequently. They will actually try to make money using the attention that they have gathered. Can you believe it? They'll try to get you to give them money. They might even try to get you to do things, right? To go see this movie, to go hate on this person because of that thing that they posted over there, right? They have your attention and they exact a kind of power and authority over you. Through that lens, it's not so so crazy to think about this idea of somebody doing something remarkable, capturing the attention of folks, right, and exercising that power and authority over those people, even for some time. Now, before we think that Simon's just a bad guy, do any of you kind of do that online, right? Try to get people's attention and use that attention, right? Can we also say that what we saw demonstrated with Philip was really Philip for these folks. He was just kind of another Simon. He had done awesome things that were really actually pretty cool. Can we suspect that Simon had done things that were actually kind of pretty cool, right? That's the economy of the world. That's the way that the world works. People get attention. They do cool things, then they rightly receive attention. There's a magic to a particularly skilled person who's able to do something that nobody else can do. It is magical and to some extent maybe worth attention. 
But again, before we think that Simon is just some bad guy, you might be rearing for a fight right now that, oh boy, Philip and Simon, they're going to go head to head, and we're going to see that Philip's magic is stronger and better than Simon's. Yeah! Simon's going to be thrown down in the mud. It's going to be great. It's going to be like, you know, Dragon Ball Z. Big battle. I just dated myself. Uh, (laughs) But then we turn to verse 12. Something kind of interesting happens here. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So folks were not only... First, they started off being amazed by his wonders and signs, the same way that they had been amazed by Simon's. But then they accept the message itself, not just the performance, but the words, the ideas. And baptism was a kind of entering in then and accepting bodily what a guy like Philip was bringing to them. The idea of the kingdom, the reign and authority of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And something even more remarkable now happens in verse 13 here. Simon himself, the great sorcerer Simon himself, believes and was baptized. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the signs and miracles he saw. Sounds like a happy ending. This is the part where we're going to get to the vacuum, the money in the vacuum salesman. Because there's something very important here, a very important distinction that we should be noticing, emerging, especially in this line about how Simon receives. Now, I mentioned that, you know, we were in the holiday season. We were all there, right? A lot of, there's one thing we all do a lot of during that time. It's what? Shopping. So much shopping. I don't know about you, but it's like, it feels like Black Friday is just like forever now. It's just always happening. In this landscape of constantly needing to purchase, or feeling like we do, of companies getting our attention with all these great, awesome products all the time coming our way, can sometimes feel difficult to navigate all of what's available. We are each a consumer, a customer, but it's not enough that we be customers. We must also be informed customers, right? I don't know about you, but if I need a winter cap, the first thing I do is I read reviews. I go online, I type into Google, what are the 10 best winter caps for men? And I get those, and then I look at the Amazon reviews, and I make sure they have five stars, because if there's anything less than five stars, it's probably not the best thing. These products must prove themselves to me, right? They prove themselves to me, and then I get the money, and then I receive product. It's great. It's the magic of money. It's the power of money in exchange. And it's power that I also get to receive because the powerful must come before me and demonstrate their effectaciousness to me. I stand in in authority over them, and I make the determination. 
When I was a kid, they don't really do this anymore. So we go online and we buy a lot of stuff. When I was a kid, though, there used to be these things called salespeople. Usually they called them salesmen, right? They would go around selling things like encyclopedias. Encyclopedias were these books that existed before we had, like, the Internet, right? Where you would actually have to, if you wanted to know Genghis Khan's birthday, you'd actually have to look it up somewhere, all right? And you couldn't just click on something and be taken to the history of KFC, right? You actually had to physically read through these things. Other stuff that was pretty common for these salesmen to sell were vacuum cleaners. Vacuum salesman was like, you know, it was kind of like a derogatory comment in some ways, right? If you're a vacuum salesman, right? But it was a job that people really had. I just spoke, the, I spoke to Tom earlier. He had that job, right? A vacuum salesman was a real thing because how else were you going to get vacuum cleaners? When I was a kid, a vacuum, one vacuum salesman came to my parents' house. I'll always remember this. He came in. He was, you know, a handsome, charismatic young man. He came in with a lot of energy. He and my parents invited him, him in because he was just so friendly. And he showed the vacuum cleaner how well it sucked. He's like, oh, check it out. It could suck the dust off of like anything, right? He goes, I always will remember there was like these lampshades and he sucked off the dust and you could see gray and like this kind of light cream color that the lampshade was supposed to be, right? It was like really good vacuum cleaner. But beyond just trying to sell he entered our home, he sat down, we ate a meal together, he's talking with my dad about all sorts of stuff, right? He even, I remember this, he found out that I played guitar, and he's sitting in there, and he's trying to show me how to play a song. It's like, before you know it, it's like he's not even selling us anything. He's just like a buddy. He's like a cool guy, right? He's just like hanging out with us. It's great. He's there for probably like an hour and 45 minutes, just like hanging out with our family. Besides the initial sales pitch, we hadn't even talked about vacuum cleaners, at this point, everybody had just kind of moved beyond it, right? Because he had entered into this kind of like, I mean, your house is like an intimate space, right? Reserved for friends, family, close people. I'm not just going to typically walk on, walk down the aisle at Walmart and say, hey, buddy, why don't you come to my house? Sit down on my couch, right? Hang out with my kids, whatever, right? But this guy, he had come into this intimate space, and we had totally let our guard down. At some point, and again, I don't fault him for this necessarily, he had our attention, and we had given it to him. At the end of the evening, though, the pitch came back around, and we thought to ourselves, oh, yeah, that's why he was here the whole time. We had become so accustomed to his presence that we just didn't even think about it. This is just our friend John hanging out here. But then the pitch comes back. Now, I'll remember, my dad felt so bad. But he's just like, you know, honestly, we just don't need another, we don't need a vac another vacuum cleaner right now. We thought, oh, well, you know, bummer, but we can, go back, we can go back to the evening as normal, right? Hanging out. That guy was out of there so fast once he knew he wasn't getting the sale, he was gone. He had had our attention, and then he had lost it, Right? He had done all the things. He had given us signs, wonders, the wonders of the vacuum cleaner. But it didn't quite stick. But what if he had proved the vacuum cleaner to us? What if he had gotten through? Would we have been friends with him all of a sudden, actually? 
Do you think if my dad had get, written him a check that we would have ever seen that guy again after we got our vacuum? It's because the power dynamic of sales is very different than friendship, right? If I go to Starbucks and the barista writes hearts on my cup, it doesn't mean that they love me. We all understand that, right? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just ruined somebody's life. <laughs> no! You wouldn't go in there with a wedding ring afterwards. They love me. They really love me. No, because that's just kind of what they do. It's part of the sales pitch. Because my waiter or waitress is nice to me at a restaurant, doesn't mean they're my best friend. And I don't fault them for that. That's the exchange system that we've established in this world. You do a thing, you give me a performance, I discern that I like that performance, and I give you money in return, right? Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Philip had proved himself. He had demonstrated to Simon, the great sorcerer and salesman, he had demonstrated to Simon that what Philip had was worthwhile. And what's more, we now, you have all Samaria, Simon himself, they're on board, and we're in verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem, which was like, this is where all the who's who disciples were, they were from Jerusalem. They heard that everybody in Samaria had, uh, had accepted the word of God, which is a great good thing. It's so cool, in fact, that Peter and John, who were like Jesus' two closest friends, they decide to go out to Samaria because it's so awesome that they heard that this is happening. When they arrive, though, they end up praying for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, any of the new people here. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord. So they saw signs and wonders. They heard a good message, good content, and they liked both of those things. But there's this other thing that they hadn't yet experienced called the Holy Spirit, what we, mean, we might call the experience of the real presence of God in their midst, not just as an intellectual fact, not just as a miraculous sign, but as like an intimate reality, a relational reality. And they come and they pray and they place their hands on these new folks. And then they receive the Holy Spirit. It's not in the signs and miracles. It's not in the content and the sales pitch. It is in the intimacy of laying on hands. Have you ever had somebody lay hands on you and pray? You have to be like relationally a pretty confident person to do something like that, to receive something like that. It's so vulnerable and intimate. And this is what Peter and John do. And folks receive the Holy Spirit. Then 18, it's Simon's turn. When Simon saw the Spirit was given, the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, 
may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Well, just chill out there, Peter, okay? What just happened? Peter and John lay hands on these folks and they receive the Spirit. Simon sees that and he's like, that's so awesome. I want it, I want it, I want it. And he, try, he gives them money, right? That's a fair exchange. You've demonstrated something cool. I want to give you some money, something cool in return, so that you'll give it to me. Then I'll be able to do it. And Peter's response is, may your, may your money perish with you. See, Simon, he still kind of had the salesman mentality here. The way he had been operating up to this point, he was being, he was having things proved to him, as everybody had been. He was getting the demonstration, the sales pitch, and now he was doing what you normally do. You purchase the thing. You get it so then you can turn around and give the same. It's the economy. It's how things work. What Peter here is demonstrating, though, or stating, is that whatever this laying on hands and the receiving of the Holy Spirit is, it is not operating on the level of money. You cannot buy the gift of God. With money, he says. And you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. And much like the vacuum cleaner salesman in many ways, I think what we see here demonstrated is Simon entering into something that is incredibly intimate. There's no fault on the vacuum cleaner salesman, no fault on Simon. They're just misunderstanding the situation. See, where they thought they were still operating in the landscape of economics, of proof and receiving money in exchange, receiving attention in exchange, they're actually in a landscape of relationship and of intimacy of depth and transformed hearts, not transformed wallets. What we see here demonstrated in Peter's response to Simon is that if the Holy Spirit is just a thing to be bought, then maybe you still haven't quite got it yet. Simon had not allowed himself to be made vulnerable yet, to have the hands laid upon him. Instead of receiving hands, he wants to give money. He had not broken down. He had not said yes to the intimate and the vulnerable. So there's still a barrier there. And yet, 
This would be kind of a hopeless story in some ways if we just were to leave it here. But by God's grace, Simon is not just a story of misapprehension or failure. He becomes a sign of the possibility of redemption and repentance. Where we see in verse 2 that Peter continues, he says, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord and hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought, not in your mind, but in your heart. Peter wants to have hope here. He wants Simon to be able to hold to the hope that if he prays to the Lord, that he may be forgiven for having this thought in his heart. The heart, which is the core, the most intimate place of who a person is. When you talk about your heart, you're not just talking about an organ in you. You're talking about everything of what you are. Verse 23, Peter continues, For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. He still holds to the economy and the fruit of what this economy of attention and economic exchange, what it is. It can produce bitterness. It can make you a captive to sin. Then Simon answered, though, and this is where we see the possibility of transformation. Prayer, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And he receives. We can hope. And we can pray with him. Because the truth of Simon here is not that we're talking about any particular person. It's not like there are these people over here who are Simon, and then there's me, and I get it. Because the truth at the end of the day is that we're all Simon, I think, sometimes. We think either that God needs to prove, prove himself to us, or we think that our faith in Jesus is just another power that we can attain, that I can give you some money and then I have it. We're afraid to let God into the intimate spaces of our lives to have hands laid on us and to receive the real radical work of the Holy Spirit that transforms not our minds or our pocketbooks, but transforms our hearts. May we be like Simon, therefore, who although blind at a point, still allows him to be, himself to be vulnerable enough to see. In the spirit of vulnerability, intimacy relationship, we're going to be now transitioning into the next part of our worship service. It's a time that we call communion. It is a time where, much like at a home, we are invited in by Jesus to come to a table, to eat, to drink, and to pray with one another, to be vulnerable before one another and before God. During this time, if you are sitting here in this room today, know that you are invited. You're invited to participate. 
in this vulnerable, relational act. I'm going to pray for us here in a moment, but as I conclude, I hope that you respond to that invitation. The way that we do it here is we come down the center aisles, grab a cracker, we dip it in either juice or wine, and we go to the back with a few folks, three, four people, and we pray together. We invite the presence of God's Holy Spirit to come. We thank Him for the meal, and then we eat together. And we do it because Jesus calls us to it, to break down those barriers, to not need to prove ourselves to one another, but to just be present with one another. Dear Jesus, we, uh, we receive this meal. And Lord, I know for myself, I, I pray that I, I'm the kind of person who is open to being, having hands laid on me, Lord, to receiving full transformative work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we go through our days, we're, we're taught constantly that we have to be proving ourselves, proving ourselves, proving ourselves, and that we must have others prove themselves to us. But that's not the way that you work, Lord. You are just given. If we have hearts to receive, you are given. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Won't you join me, sisters and brothers, at the table of the Lord? <laughs>